A federal grant is likely to cover millions of dollars in security costs for the 2024 Democratic National Convention in Chicago. And I'll talk with Crane's residential real estate reporter Dennis Rodkin about news from the housing market, including how asking prices for homes has hit a new high. Inventory is so tight that sellers know you're going to pay. If you want my house, you're going to pay. And in fact, some of these houses we're going to talk about in the next couple of minutes same thing happened. People were able to ask a somewhat optimistic price, and then uh, buyers went a little higher. I'm Amy Guth, and this is Crane's Daily Gist for Thursday, April 13th. When it comes to your small business, every dollar and every minute counts. So why would you work with a bank that doesn't make your business a priority? Wintrust's team of dedicated local experts can guide you through the SBA application process and help you secure the funds you need to succeed. Last year, they lent the most to Illinois small businesses through SBA loans, making Wintrust the state's number one SBA lender. Start expecting more from your bank. Visit Wintrust.com SBA lending. Banking products provided by Wintrust Financial Corporation Banks. Member FDIC, equal housing lender. I'm joined by Crane's residential real estate reporter, Dennis Rodkin, here to talk about news of the week from the local housing market. Hello, Dennis. Hi, Amy. Happy spring. Happy spring at long last. It is warm outside. Yeah, finally. Everybody's mood seemed to like shift overnight. Suddenly everybody was like, hello, good morning when you walk by people on the street. Exactly. It's the best part of Chicago. And a lot less of, boy, I got to get out of Chicago. I yeah. know. It's, it, it's my favorite part. It's like when it's warm here, Chicagoans, we live like it's our last day on earth. Oh, absolutely. And we're like so excited about it. So, all right, well, let's get into some housing. Let's start by talking about some reporting you did about asking prices for homes. That has hit a new high. Tell me. Yeah, in late March, uh, the median asking price of a home in the Chicago region, not just the city, hit 333500 That is higher than the same time last year, about two percentage points higher than the same time last year. More important, it's a 1.1% above our peak ever asking price, which was mid-May 2022. Right. As most people remember, we were really in the rager of the end of the housing boom at that time. Interest rates were rising really fast. Everything was just going absolutely crazy. Home prices hit a high then. So it's a little bit of a surprise that they would hit another high again now. These are asking prices. It's a measure of optimism. There are a couple of reasons this is going on. One, inventory is so tight that sellers know you're going to pay. If you want my house, you're going to pay. And in fact, some of these houses we're going to talk about in the next couple of minutes, same thing happened. People were able to ask a somewhat optimistic price and then uh, buyers went a little higher. So I looked around the region. I talked to agents all over and they said, yeah, you know, um, the conservative asking prices of the fall when it looked like interest rates were just going to scare everybody out of the market. A lot of that has gone away because buyers continue to be out there. Uh, for one thing, I've adjusted to the fact that interest rates have gone up. Uh, the shock of several months ago is gone. And I'm thinking, well, I need to buy. I need to buy at these interest rates. And, and again, in, um, uh, inventory is very tight. Couple of the reasons inventory is tight. One is so many people, so many homes were sold during the boom, were traded 
during the boom, there's just not a lot of inventory still to come on the market. Another is both during that time and in years prior, homes were sold or buyers had such very low interest rates that a lot of people are very reluctant to let go. I don't want to move up to another house because my payment will skyrocket because interest rates are so much higher. And then agents told me as well that there has been for several months sort of a wait and see attitude that may be going away. But uh, sellers were saying, well, you know, people are probably leaving the market. Uh, interest rates are so scary. I don't know that I want to move. So there was a one agent said, a lot of people said, well, we'll wait till January. Eh, okay, it's January. We'll wait till February. Well, now let's wait till March. I think a lot of that is curing now, and we may see more inventory come on the market. And and then it's that sort of uh, interwoven sort of a thing where prices have gone up so that sellers say, well, then I'll put it on the market. You know, So there's another form of optimism. The one form of op- optimism pulls another form of optimism into the market. Right. Yeah. Um, I do want to emphasize that's asking prices. Asking prices have continued to rise. Selling prices, uh, as you know, they've been flat for months now, since October. Um, each week, when I look at the weekly data, the sale, the prices of homes that sold in the previous week was pretty much flat with what sold the same time a year prior. And that, so that's from October to today, mid-April, or yeah, mid-April. Um, home prices have not gone very far from where they were a year ago. Sold prices, I should say, have not gone very far from where they were a year ago. I also want to talk about a story that you mentioned working on uh, last week, and that is about uh, the number of homes that were planned for a site in Lakeview and how that has shifted quite a bit. And it keeps seems like it keeps folding in half. It is. In the course of three years, this site, which is um, on, on the north and south, it's School and Melrose Streets. On the east, it's Racine, formerly an industrial, uh, sorry, light industrial site. In the course of three years, the number of units to be built, planned, to be built on that site has gone from 28 to 12 to six or fewer. It may only be four and I'll explain why. So this was, this, as I said, was a light industrial lot. It's surrounded by houses. It's a great part of Lakeview. You're on inner streets, not a big busy street. And um, in 2019, I guess I should say in the course of four years, not three years, in 2019, there was a proposal to build Uh, 28 townhouses on this site. And then in 2021, that failed, uh, didn't go, didn't go through. In 2021, we, you and I talked about a developer who was going to build 12 townhouses. It's essentially 12 city lots, though it had been one large parcel. Those were all going to start at $2 million. Um, But instead, he has been selling the land piecemeal. Somebody took four lots, then that same uh, entity took five lots, and then there are several others all being sold in in two or more. Um, The reason I say, and so the biggest is this five lots on the northwest corner of that parcel, all sold to one person who's building one house. So where we might have seen, uh, you know, eight townhouses or five, uh, sorry, eight eight of the original in the original, five in the next plan, we're not going to see one house. Um, Unfortunately, that person didn't respond to my calls, so I don't know how big a house or anything like that. But it's on five city lots, a city lot being 25 by 125. Um, and, and the other pieces have all, some have sold, have already sold two lots at a time, and some are on the market two lots at a time. 
So depending on how it sells, we will either see six, five, or four houses built on this site where, again, just a few years ago, there were 28 uh, proposed and then 12. This is a really sort of an interesting thing because this this is not because um, activists, residents have said, no, that's too dense. Mm-hmm. It's just because buyers have come along and said, I want a big piece of that land. Mm. And so uh, it's, it's sort of uh, reducing density in a very different way, not because of some ordinance fight or something like that. Right. And in, in, in the way that, not the way it usually goes, because it usually is about a, a complaint or an ordinance or something like that. You know, when I first found that uh, one chunk of five was sold and another of three, I wondered if there had been some kind of roadblock that had been put up. Had I, had I missed it? You know, I took my eyes off that site for a little while and something changed. But no, it was just that buyers came along and said, oh, I'll take a chunk of that, mm-hmm. uh, which it, it remains to be seen what the neighborhood thinks. There are, you know, when I put this story on Twitter, there were people who said, oh, this is horrible because we should be building more density everywhere in the city. And then there were those who said, this is great because, you know, green space surrounds these houses uh, when they're built on these big lots. So we'll see uh, how people feel when this is all built out. Yeah, definitely. Well, you mentioned townhouses. Let's talk about one in the before it hits the market realm. Um, that is right there on the Chicago River, surrounded by skyscrapers. Tell me about this place. Oh, this one This one is so nice. Uh, this is another time for me to say, I'm so glad that we've got COVID far enough behind us that I can actually go to these properties rather than just do it by photos. Because going to this property is like going to the the beating heart of Chicago. You're on the the um, river walk, the north side of the main branch of the river. When you're standing on the front steps of this townhouse, you're looking at the St. Regis, which is just mm. a spectacular building. Yeah. Uh, I was there in the spring, but if I'd been standing there in summer, there would have been kayakers and tour boats all spread out in front of me. If I'd been there on certain nights of the week, there would have been the fireworks from Navy Pier. And we haven't even gone inside the townhouse yet. Right. That's just standing at the door. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And all that view as well from the rooftop. It's got this great, you saw the pictures. It's got this great rooftop space. Uh, It's it's, so the the townhouse is 4,400 square feet. The rooftop is over a thousand square feet with a seating area and fire pit right out there at the edge so that you're looking at all those things I described. Uh, There's also a cooking area, a huge fireplace, big screen TV all outside. You've got, you know, a lot of, a lot of people don't live in a thousand square feet of house or apartment, but this is much less just the outside and inside. It's really nice. These were built. uh, This, this is a part of Streeterville. Well, it's right next to the river built out in 2006 with two uh, high rises and at their base to keep from just having like a parking podium on the river, there are townhouses. So there, I don't know, I think there are probably a dozen townhouses there along the river walk with the high rises behind them. And one of the advantages that the sellers of this one told me about is they said, you know, we, we can walk in from the river walk where it's like walking into our own house. There's nobody else around or go out the back door of the unit and you're, you don't, it doesn't go outside. It goes directly into the condo building. So go to the gym, the dog walk, the go to the package desk, all those kinds of things. He, what he said is we've got all the advantages of a condo without living in a condo. It's really, it's pretty cool. And uh, I don't think I mentioned the price. It's just under 2.6 million. That includes, uh, they have reached, so this was built in 2006. 
They have just redone the kitchen. It looks like a 2023 kitchen, really nice finishes. And besides, they sort of pulled the kitchen out. It had been sort of half blocked from the view. So if you were cooking, you weren't necessarily seeing all that great stuff I described out the windows. When they rehabbed, they also pulled the kitchen out so that every everywhere you are in the kitchen, you're looking over the heads of the people in the living room and out uh, to fireworks, kayaks, St. Regis, all that sort of thing. It's a pretty sweet, I said, it's sort of the beating heart of Chicago. I mean, you're living right on the Chicago River. I think the thing to do is just drop your kayak right over the... um, Right over the edge. Yeah, and just (laughs) go from there. Right, jump right in. Definitely a great spot. All right, let's talk about a a national landmark that we had talked about a while ago that belonged to an activist in the 1920s, and it had gone on the market at the time. It is now sold. Tell me about this. Yeah, it actually sold pretty fast. This is on Crilly Court in Old Town. Um, 99 years ago, in 1924, this was the home where one of the, well, actually two of the founders, but the leader and another founder of the first um, legally sanctioned gay rights organization in America was founded. In Chicago in 1924, a group led by a man named Henry Gerber founded the Society for Human Rights which was an advocacy group for rights. And, and in all their charter, they talk about um, no children, no immoral acts, all that. We are simply talking about the rights of people. Uh, and they got a state charter. That's why we say the first state. They actually got a charter from the state of Illinois, first in America to get such a thing. Um, and some of the original meetings were in this, ta- this townhouse. It was a boarding house at the time. Henry Gerber had one room. Another renter in the building was Henry T. Cutter. They were two of the founders. And um, the rooms where they lived, have all, it's all been entirely rehabbed inside. So there aren't any things they touched. But the basement would have been where they had some of their meetings. The organization only lasted a year. They were busted in a police raid. There, there's a whole story that some people know. And if you don't, it's worth looking up. But the Society for Human Rights really was based there. It was proclaimed a national historic landmark. It's only the second national historic landmark related to the LGBTQ rights movement after Stonewall in New York. Wow. That's how important this property is. Yeah. I mean, this is, this is pretty significant. So there was a couple, um, the Bowers, who lived there from 1985, and they actually pulled up a lot of this historical information. They also did a lot of the rehab. Um, Shirley Bauer, who unfortunately has died, told me a few years ago that um, she she like really did a ton of research on what happened in this building. And um, she was very proud to own this house. They put it on the market because they were aging. She died in the course of that. They uh, It went on the market last fall and it sold last week for $1.46 million. I spoke to the agent for the buyers, haven't yet spoken to the buyers themselves, who said they were actually just looking for a nice place in Old Town. And then when they found out the history of this one, it added to the appeal, which is not to say they paid more for it because of its history, but they were very pleased to be the new owners of this National Historic Landmark. Yeah, definitely. And before we move to another property, let me just throw in something that Shirley Bauer found uh, in her research. It's such an important piece of this story, I think. So uh, the police raid, uh, I believe, two different locations, this house and another place where there were meetings. Several men are arrested. They only spend three days in jail. There are no charges leveled against them. 
But one of the pieces of evidence against Henry Gerber, this man who led the founding of the organization, is a note that he wrote that said, I love Carl. Hmm. K-A-R-L. I love Carl. 1925. And this is used as evidence that he must be depraved. Sure. Shirley Bauer learned that that was actually, I love Karl Marx. <laughs> is that amazing? And this is, so this is the former owner, Shirley Bauer, who died while the pro- property was for sale. And she sort of unearthed this, I think, incredible piece of history of this group. How interesting. And interesting that she was able to, to verify that. Yeah, I in my notes I have where she found it and that sort of thing. But just the idea, well, there are so many really shameful pieces to the history of the uh, Society for Human Rights and how they were treated by the Chicago police. But that um, that I think is amazing. I love Carl Marx. <laughs> what an interesting detail. Not that Marx wasn't in the note. The note just said I love Carl. But right. yeah, he had recently read some works of Karl Marx. And and was all in on them. How interesting. Yeah. Let's actually go back to Lincoln Park and talk about a house that was made by two different properties by by joining them that has uh, sold for 5.5 million. Yeah. These are, so these are some 19th century row houses. There are only two and they were combined to make one house. I believe when you look at the block that they were probably part of a long row of 19th century row houses. But again, this is all that remains. All their neighbors are 1980s and and other eras. So it appears that this was all that was saved. Um, The couple who just sold them bought one in 1985, one in 1995, put them together into about a 9,000 square foot house, 9,100 square foot house. Um, It's nice that these were saved. I mean, they're such Chicago classics with the limestone lintels with the flower carved in it and the red brick. I mean, you can see, of course, hundreds of these all over the city here is a place where a lot of the rest on the block were taken down, but these two were saved. This is interesting. It went on the market in April 2020, which was really sort of the nadir. Yeah. Uh, it was before the housing boom really took off. Uh, they didn't sell and they were taken off the market. And then they popped back up as sold last week at $5.5 million. I, Neither of the agents would talk to me, neither the agent for the sellers nor the agent for the buyers. So I don't know anything more but I would assume it was privately listed at that time and went for the, the sale price, 5.5 million is what they were asking in 2020. Okay. Uh, I'd love to see the inside because if you've taken those two historical units and put them together, and if you've sold it for 5.5 million, I assume it's really beautiful inside, but I will say the outside is like a Chicago classic. Totally. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Well, hopefully someone listening has the ability to give you that inside tour. They never do, Amy. You always, we put out this call, please call Dennis, and they never do. I know. I don't know why no one is listening to my demands, but we got to work on that. (laughs) We got to work on that. We need to increase our clout scores. I know. I suppose we do. As for that house and and all the ones we're talking about today, everybody, you can head to chicagobusiness.com and you can see photos of all these cool houses. So um, speaking of classic old houses and cool ones, let's talk about uh, the Dree House Gold Coast Mansion that had a little part in Ferris Bueller. We've talked about this one before, not too long ago. Not too long ago. It actually sold really fast. So this is a house um, in the Gold Coast that, as far as I know, was the actual home of Richard Dree House. He owned a lot of properties. His office is in one. Uh, his either wife or ex-wife was in another. Um, I believe this is where he actually lived 
big, beautiful house built in 1877. By the way, for those who don't know, Richard Driehaus died two years ago, March 2021, and several of his properties have been sold in Lake Geneva. Or, or, well, that's the main one that has been sold. And now this, it was already a huge row house built in 1877. And then there's an addition. So what you have, Driehaus, of course, was such a fan of architectural craft and ornamental things. You have this 1877 place that's done up palatially with painted plaster and two gold cherubs on the um, living room fireplace. And I mean, it really does look like a palace in Chicago. And then continue going back. And he converted the entire rear of the home into something that looks like an ocean liner from 1933. It's all based on the SS Normandy, uh, 1935, I should say. So it's this beautiful art deco space with, with just absolutely wonderful details. So you've gone in the course of walking from the front of the back to the house, back of the house, you've gone from 1877 to 1935. Really amazing. That's the Dree House part. So the house is on Dearborn, but it also goes around the corner on Schiller. The entire house in the 80s was painted white. It's red brick now. And if you watch Ferris Bueller, where Ferris and his other friends from the North Shore who were cruising around in the city go into a French restaurant called Chez Quiz, mm-hmm. this is that house. This is the Abe Froman scene. Yeah, the Abe Froman scene where, where Ferris Bueller says, yes, I am Abe Froman, the sausage king of Chicago. <laughs> That's in this house. All right. So you walk in that side door. It's interesting because... You really have to look. It was painted white at the time, and now it's red brick. But if you freeze frame that scene, you see the windows and everything exactly as it was. There's been a sort of a columned shelter over added to the doorway. But there it is. There it is. That's where that's that classic. Yes, I am Abe Froman, the sausage king <laughs> of Chicago. So this, I don't, I don't think we even got to the price. This sold for five point six five million dollars. That's the. It just sold this week. Um, it's the second highest price in the city so far in 2023. Highest price is Ken Griffin's $11.2 million condo. And it's the fourth highest price in the um, Chicago area so far this year. I'm sure that will that story will change as we go through the year. But I think it will. Indeed. All right. A family had this house for 70 years and then it sold in a single day. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. Well, so this is this is kind of the example I was I was talking about from um, when we were talking about low inventory. A lot of houses are selling quickly. I have several stories either in the in the can or coming that are about houses that have sold or landed a buyer quickly. But this one was especially fast. This one, the day it was listed, went under contract. This is such a cool house. It's in the villa which for people who don't know, is it's really sort of the best arts and crafts neighborhood in Chicago. If you picture Addison just west of the Kennedy, it's those blocks north of Addison. Uh, beautiful area, parkways in the middle, some great arts and crafts bungalows, and this Spanish Revival house, L-shaped, brick house, columned entrance, clay tile roof, go inside and it looks like 1953 because that's when this family bought this house. That's so You've cool. got red carpet throughout. Yeah, you do. <laughs> yeah, you saw the pictures. <laughs> and there are original details from 1929 that have just not been changed, including beautiful vintage bathroom tile. There's a bathroom that is green and purple that just like... It's magic. I, I, I would like to just buy the bathroom and move it to my house. Right. Um, <laughs> right. Really wonderful. There are twisted columns, wonderful sort of 
Spanish revival style twisted columns, this curving staircase that you can just imagine a woman in sort of a 1950s ball gown comes flouncing down those stairs. Just an amazing house. It was a wedding gift for a couple from her parents in 1953. Mm -hmm. She and her husband lived there from then until their deaths. It has been in the family for 70 years. What came on the market last week. And so this is a problem I'm having these days. Came on the market. I had some other stories to do. I couldn't call that day. I called the next day and they said, oh yeah, it's under contract. <laughs> right. It had gone under contract. Don't know yet what the sale price will be, but given that it went under contract so fast, they were asking just under 900000 I would expect it to sell for right around there. And another piece of evidence we have is that a bungalow also in the villa uh, came on the this was, this is one of the biggest price gaps I've seen. Came on the market for seven hundred and fifteen thousand dollars, sold for seven ninety two five hundred, sold for eleven percent over the asking price. It too went under contract uh, in a few days, I think in a week. And this is also in the villa. Um, this is a function of low inventory, but also of the fact that the villa is just a super cool place. Yeah. Cool houses, yeah. All right. Well, one other house I want to talk with you about. This is in no Chicago neighborhood. This is uh, the Malibu mansion of Chris Chelios. It has been listed. Tell me. Yeah, listed for seven, for $75 million. And, oh, is that all? <laughs> yeah. And one of the fun things is, so we'll talk about the house. Chris Chelios and his wife, Tracy, have owned this house since 2003. They've been going to Malibu since before that. When the story first appeared in the Wall Street Journal, Chris Chelios was interviewed. He didn't talk to me. And one of the things he said is they're selling at $75 million because their grandkids are here in the Chicago area. So they're thinking of getting a home on Lake Michigan that is comparable um, to Malibu. To Malibu, huh? <laughs> yeah. I'd, I'd like to uh, introduce him to Chicago in January <laughs> and explain yeah, why I it think is he's been there. not quite. He's, he's not unfamiliar with ice. Amy. I think he's familiar <laughs> with how ice works, but I'm not yeah. sure he's going to get the Malibu vibe he's looking for here in Chicago. But yeah. hey, good, good on you, man. Who knows? They may, you know, they may end up buying another one there. They have been going. I love this. Uh, they've been going to Malibu since the mid '90s. When oh, we didn't even say who he is, he, he played for the Blackhawks. For people who don't know, sure. Chris Chelios played for the Blackhawks for eight and a half seasons out of his 27 season NHL career, and he's a Chicago native. Though he went to high school in San Diego, right near me. Just so you know. Oh. They have been going to Malibu since the mid-90s. He was on the Blackhawks. He's playing the LA Kings. He meets Tony Danza, which I guess is what happens. As you do. <laughs> yeah. And Tony Danza says, oh, you got to see Malibu. It's great. Okay. And so then they, uh, Chris and Tracy Chelios, end up um, renting in Malibu and then buying. I think this one that they're selling now is their third consecutive house in Malibu. They're still friendly with Tony Danza. Chris Chelios is so identified with Malibu, he's he's the head of something called the Malibu Mob, mm. which is celebrity <laughs> homeowners in Malibu who hang out together. They include Chris Chelios, Tony Danza, another Chicagoan, um, John Cusack, sure. and several others are known as the Malibu Mob, <laughs> which makes me think that you know maybe they might downsize in Malibu, but the Chelioses are not going to yeah. actually leave Malibu. That's right. That's I right. I mean, when you've got the Malibu Mob. Also, definitely the first time we have mentioned, not the first time we've mentioned John Cusack on this podcast, but definitely the first time we've mentioned Tony Danza. 
It's true. <laughs> it's about time Tony Danza made his debut on this podcast. We, well, we should mention that on our other podcast where we talk about great. Remember that other podcast we have, Amy, where we talk about great sitcoms of the 80s? Absolutely. On our episodes about Taxi, <laughs> we always talk about Tony You know that Taxi is my ringtone on my phone. Is it really? It really is for real. It is It is actually the ringtone. And I love it because if I'm sitting somewhere and my phone rings, so, like there's certain folks that will go, oh, taxi. Other people are like, oh, what's that cool song? There's a, there's a cutoff point where people are like, I've never heard that. And I'm like, oh, yeah, oh it's taxi. Sure. One of the greatest shows of all time. <laughs> After we turn off the microphones, I'll do for you my Latka Gravis impersonation. Uh, I feel like that listeners are going to demand that be on mic, not off mic. But you do you. <laughs> nope. <laughs> not, not without money. <laughs> okay. Challenge accepted then. <laughs> he can be bribed. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, goodness. Okay. So tell me what's coming up in the week ahead. Uh, you know, I'm looking into a strategy that several agents have told me people are using now. Um, I don't want to get rid of my house with that incredibly low mortgage, Okay. but I want to move. So I'll rent it because rents are going up so fast. Hold on to it at that two three percent mortgage. Um, I still have to buy a new one at six percent, but I'm not giving up on yeah. the one I had. So I'm looking into that. And in fact, I should say, if anybody out there is an example, give me a call. Great. All right. You've put out two call to actions today. <laughs> one to get you to do <laughs> the latka impression, <laughs> and the other if you are renting out your lower mortgage house. Yeah. Let's keep count of which one wins. I'm here for that contest 100%. All right. Well, thank you, Dennis. We'll talk again this time next week. Thanks, Amy. Coming up, a new survey finds that a majority of people in the U.S. say they or a family member has experienced gun violence. We'll talk about that and more right after this. Crane's Audio Studio presents Four Star Stories, The Felonious Adventures of a Chicago Mole, a four-part series reported by Albie Galoon. John Thomas has stories, lots of them. But you have to ask, how much of what he says is real? You could drop me in any country in the world, I'll be a millionaire in six months. Anyway. I'm Albie Galoon, and when I began on the real estate beat at Crane's two decades ago, I began hearing the name John Thomas a lot. Look, John is a narcissistic egomaniac. Thomas was making his name in Chicago real estate. He had a brash New York swagger and a 350-pound frame that got him noticed. Were you a good football player? I was, I used to bench 590 pounds. Come on. That's a fact. He avoided one trip to prison by working as an informant for federal prosecutors. But Thomas managed to wind up behind bars anyway. So I walk outside and there's 10 FBI agents wearing fucking blazers around my car. These are the felonious adventures of a Chicago mole, told in four chapters. I said, what did I do this time? They said, nothing. I said, can I go home? I said, today you can. Follow us wherever you get your podcasts. Four Star Stories from Crane's Audio Studio. This is the Crane's Daily Gist with Amy Guth.
The 2024 Democratic National Convention is coming to Chicago, providing a boost to the city's economy and giving local elected officials a win. But it will also come with increased security risks and a massive tab the city will look to Congress and private donors to cover. Crane's Justin Lawrence reported that on Tuesday, officials took a victory lap in securing the bid, which was the result of a coordinated effort between Illinois Governor J.B. Pritzker, Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot, the state's congressional delegation, and labor partners. But now those same leaders, including mayor-elect Brandon Johnson, will begin preparing for a convention anticipated to bring 50,000 politicos, lobbyists, journalists, and likely protesters to Chicago in August of 2024. Lawrence noted in reporting that political conventions are expensive affairs. Sources associated with Chicago's bid expect a tab of around $90 million, and they're mostly funded by private donors providing corporate executives and wealthy donors another chance to parlay contributions into FaceTime with elected officials. Lawrence further reported that a nonprofit to accommodate the influx of donations has already been established, and a website has been created to solicit contributions. Pritzker previously told President Joe Biden that Chicago would be able to raise the cash necessary without leaving the host committee in debt, which has happened in previous cities. But security for the event is expected to be paid through federal grants. That according to those involved with the bid who spoke with Cranes. A spokesperson for the Democratic National Committee told Cranes, quote, The DNCC and host committee will employ security experts with deep experience in events of this sort who will coordinate with local and federal law enforcement, including the U.S. Secret Service. In 2014, former President Barack Obama signed legislation eliminating public funding for the political galas, parties, and hobnobbing that defines conventions. But Congress has still appropriated money to offset security costs associated with the events. Since 2012, Congress has allocated $100 million towards convention security costs, $50 million each for both the Democratic and Republican conventions. And Lawrence further reported that a look at past conventions sheds light on the kind of security Chicagoans can expect in 2024, noting that in the lead-up to the 2012 DNC event in Charlotte, the local ABC affiliate obtained a document outlining a portion of the security-related costs. That document shows a nearly $705,000 tab to set up a command center, nearly $938,000 for lodging, staging, and meeting space for out-of-town law enforcement officers, and over $40,000 for mobile public address systems. And with the nation's Democrats all in one space, the event is likely to become a target for protesters, which could both increase Chicago Police Department overtime spending and put a strain on the already tenuous relationship between activists and CPD. Find more reporting around many aspects of the DNC coming to Chicago in 2024 at chicagobusiness.com. Bloomberg Law reported that Ernst & Young's top leaders called off a planned breakup of the firm's consulting and audit practices after the U.S. affiliate decided not to take part, disrupting a nearly year-long struggle to build consensus for the historic shakeup of the Big Four accounting firm. Bloomberg reported that leaders told partners Tuesday that they planned to continue laying the groundwork for a possible split, but that more time and investments were needed to make that a reality. For background, the firm intended to split off its consulting business and much of its tax practice into a standalone public company. But as Bloomberg reported, the plan, known as Project Everest, suffered repeated setbacks as partners disagreed over compensation and the resources needed to staff the remaining audit practice, a key sticking point for leaders of EY's U.S. affiliate. 
Just two weeks ago, U.S. and global leaders said they were still working to resolve differences over key aspects of the deal, including how to staff the audit practice and how to divide the tax practice. Bloomberg noted that roughly 13,000 partners were originally expected to vote on the deal late last year, but the timeline was pushed back several times. Firm leaders have long argued that the consulting and audit practices would be more profitable and successful once untethered from one another. In the memo to partners, firm leaders said that the rationale behind the carve-out plans remains strong and that EY is still committed to, quote, creating two world-class organizations that further advance audit quality, independence, and client choice. Crane's sister publication, Modern Healthcare, reported that high labor costs and shaky financial markets contributed to Advocate Aurora Health's more than $750 million net loss in 2022, a steep drop from the $1.85 billion gain it reported a year ago. Advocate Aurora, which is now part of the larger Advocate Health organization, posted a $23.89 million operating loss in 2022. Investment losses totaled $723.23 million, that according to disclosures from the healthcare system. The results don't include any contribution from Charlotte, North Carolina-based Atrium Health, according to a spokesperson. In December, Advocate Aurora completed its merger with Atrium Health, creating a system called Advocate Health with $27 billion in annual revenue, 67 hospitals across six states, and almost 150,000 workers. Advocate Aurora's revenue rose 3.4% to over $14.5 billion, with 3.1% growth in patient service revenue. Expenses jumped 8.2%, also to around $14.5 billion, including an 11.7% increase for salaries and wages and a 4.5% increase for supplies and purchased services. In the fourth quarter, Advocate Aurora reported net income of $160.83 million, a nearly 60% drop from a year ago. Revenue increased 0.3% to $3.78 billion, and expenses rose 6.4% to $3.85 billion. Kaiser Health News reported that a majority of people in the U.S. say they or a family member has experienced gun violence, such as witnessing a shooting, being threatened by a person with a gun, or being shot. That according to a sweeping new survey from the Kaiser Family Foundation. The national survey conducted by KFF revealed the severe physical and psychological harm exacted by firearm violence, especially in traditionally marginalized communities. The survey found that nearly one in five respondents, including 34% of black adults surveyed, 18% of Hispanic adults surveyed, and 17% of white adults surveyed, said a family member had been killed by a gun. Dr. Selwyn Rogers, a surgeon and founding director of the U Chicago Medicine Trauma Center, said the survey, quote, confirms that firearm-related injuries are ubiquitous, continuing by saying, quote, for every person killed, there are two or three people harmed, noting some injuries as long-term and unrecoverable. Dr. Rogers also said that beyond causing physical injuries, gun violence has also left many in the U.S. living with trauma and fear. The survey noted that just over half of adults surveyed say that gun-related crimes, injuries, and deaths are a, quote, constant threat or, quote, major concern in their communities. About 3 in 10 black or Hispanic adults say they feel, quote, not too safe or, quote, not safe at all from gun violence in their neighborhoods. Women also reported higher rates of concern about firearm violence, with 58% saying gun-related crimes are a constant threat or major concern, compared with just 43% of men. 
More than half of intimate partner homicides are committed with guns, with women as five times more likely to be murdered by an abusive partner when the abuser has access to a gun, according to research published by academic journal Injury Epidemiology. About one in four parents of children under 18 also said they worry daily or almost daily about gun violence, according to the survey, and 84% of adults surveyed reported having taken at least one precaution to reduce their family's risk from gun violence. For example, more than one-third of adults say that they have avoided large crowds, such as at music festivals or crowded venues. Also of note, gun violence surged during the pandemic. There were a record 48,830 firearm-related deaths in 2021, which was an increase of 23% from 2019, according to an analysis by the Pew Research Center. And the increase among children was even sharper. Firearm deaths among those under 18, which also includes those due to homicide, suicide, and gun-related accidents, was up by 50%, going from 1,732 cases in 2019 to 2,590 cases in 2021. According to the Centers of Disease Control and Prevention, guns have become the leading cause of death among children and adolescents ages 1 through 19. But the pandemic also coincided with a huge increase in gun purchases, which grew an estimated 64 percent from 2019 to 2020. According to the KFF survey, 29 percent of adults have purchased a gun at some point to protect themselves or their families, with 44 percent of parents of children under 18 saying they keep a gun in the home. Yet according to research from Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health, 78% of parents in gun-owning households fail to follow safety recommendations, such as locking guns and ammunition, storing guns unloaded, and storing guns and ammunition separately, practices that have been shown to reduce the risk of thefts, accidents, and suicides. You can find a link to the full survey data at chicagobusiness.com. That's Crane's Daily Gist for now. Check in on our continuous news feed at chicagobusiness.com. Thanks so much to today's guest, Crane's residential real estate reporter, Dennis Rodkin. You can follow all of our conversations on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to get your audio on demand. Don't forget to subscribe and please rate and review Crane's Daily Gist. Our show is produced by Todd Manley at Earsight Studios. I'm Amy Guth. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll meet you right back here next time.